Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. In 2005, Michelina Lewandowska met and fell in love with Marcin Kasprzak. The couple got engaged a year later and moved from Poland to England. In 2008, Michelina got pregnant, and soon after, the relationship began to crumble. She would end up giving birth to a son named Jacob. Meanwhile, the couple caught off their engagement, but they remained together, and Michelina continued to wear her ring in hopes that things would eventually work themselves out. By 2011, things had only gotten worse and it was clear that Marcin was not interested in mending their broken relationship. So Michelina told him she was unhappy and wanted to return to Poland with their three-year-old son. On Saturday, May 28, 2011, Marcin invited Michelina to go shopping with him and his friend, 18-year-old Patrick Boris. Although this was unusual because he never wanted to spend time with Miss Shalina, the thought of hanging out with him made her happy because she ultimately wanted to keep her family together. She also loved and trusted him and hoped that maybe he had a change of heart and had decided to treat her better. Jacob was spending the day with his grandmother, Marcin's mother. As Miss Shalina exited the bathroom after getting ready, Marcin and Patrick were sitting there staring back at her with eerie smiles plastered across their faces. Marcin grabbed Michelina's arm and said he wanted to show her something. He pulled a 300,000-volt stun gun from his pocket, pressed it against her neck, and tasered her. As she fell on the floor, Marcin put his knees on her chest and held her down. Marcin yelled at Patrick to get the packing tape. They then gagged Michelina, bound her wrists and ankles, and taped her mouth shut. They left her tied up, slumped against a wall, and tasered her once again. A few hours later, they dragged her into the kitchen and put her inside a cardboard box. As Marcin began to tape the box shut, with her inside, she screamed for him to let her go. Marcin knelt down, laughed, and said, I've hated you for four years. You'll never see your son again. They put the cardboard box in the trunk of Patrick's car, and drove to a wooded area near Huddersfield in West Yorkshire. They placed the box into a shallow, pre-dug grave and put an 88-pound log on top of her. As she lay in the box, terrified, Michelina could hear the sound of dirt being shoveled on top of her. Then, after a while, the noises stopped. Feeling she would suffocate, Michelina began thinking of her son and started taking shallow breaths, trying to keep conscious. She used the sharp edges of her engagement ring to cut the tape off her mouth, legs, and wrist. She slashed away at the cardboard until she was able to make a hole. She put her fingers through the hole and tore away at the cardboard, but all she felt was soil. The soil began to collapse into the box, covering Michelina's face, hair, and clothes. 
She screamed for help, but no one was around to hear her. She was weak, and her entire body throbbed with pain, but she knew she had to keep fighting if she wanted to see her son again. Michelina continued to slash, kick, and tear at the box until she was able to stick an arm out, then her head, and then her entire body. After an hour inside the box, Michelina miraculously freed herself. She ran into the road and called a motorist's attention who phoned the police. Fifteen minutes later, authorities arrived and Michelina showed them the cardboard box in which she had been buried alive. Marson was shocked when authorities knocked on his door and told him he was under arrest for the kidnapping and attempted murder of Michelina. While searching the home they shared, authorities found several chemicals and instructions for homemade explosives. Authorities later discovered that after burying Michelina alive, the two men withdrew money from an ATM using her bank card. Marson claims that he only intended to scare Michelina and didn't actually have plans to kill her. However, the court wasn't buying it, and he was convicted of attempted murder and kidnapping and sentenced to 20 years in prison. Patrick was also found guilty of kidnapping and sentenced to four and a half years. To this day, Michelina has nightmares that Marson will come back to find her and kill her. With no family in the UK to help her, Michelina was thankful for all the care she received from the police and staff of West Yorkshire Police. Gina Renee Hall was born on August 24, 1961, and grew up in Coburn, Virginia, with her three siblings, stepmother and father. Gina was loved by many for her happy disposition. She loved to dance and even helped teach children's dance classes. She was voted most popular in her senior class at Coburn High School, where she was the lead percussionist in the school's marching band. She graduated from Coburn High in 1979 and enrolled in Emory and Henry College the following fall before transferring to Radford University in the spring of 1980. In 1980, 18-year-old Gina was a freshman living with her sister Delena, who was also a graduate student at the university. Gina was described as a friendly, soft-spoken, and all-around amazing young woman with many goals in life. Gina had just finished her exams on June 28, 1980, and later that night, left home at around 10 p.m. to meet friends at the Blacksburg Marriott Lounge in Blacksburg, Virginia, and arrived around 11 p.m. Within half an hour of Gina's arrival, witnesses saw a man harassing and bothering Gina. Two older women tried to intervene and assist Gina after she sought refuge at their table. The man was later identified as 28-year-old Stephen Madison Epperly and was not someone that Gina knew. Epperly played football for Virginia Tech for one season before becoming a high school substitute teacher. Before the women left, Gina convinced them that she would be okay and then was seen leaving the gathering at about midnight, followed by Epperly and his best friend, likely unknowingly. The two men would later try to convince others that she willingly went with Epperly, but those close to her knew better. Her friends and family stated that she would have never voluntarily left with any man or anyone she didn't fully trust or know well, and certainly not a character 10 years her senior such as Epperly. 
Rumors spread that she had been dancing with Epperly that night, when the truth was that she danced with someone else instead. After leaving the Blacksburg Marriott Lounge, Gina was never seen again. Later in the week, when the news announced Gina's disappearance, the two women who assisted Gina that night reported the harassment incident to the local police, but that information became buried in the case file. The car Gina was driving that night was seen at a three-story lake house at Clater Lake, 20 miles from Blacksburg. Come to find out, the home was owned by Epperly's friend's parents, who were out of town for the weekend. The friend was Bill King, and he allegedly gave Epperly the keys to the house that night in the parking lot as he was leaving the Marriott Lounge. Once there, Gina made one last phone call to her sister that night. Her sister would report that Gina sounded nervous in her short, out-of-character conversation. She told her sister she was looking at a lake, as if Gina did not know where she was, but wanted her sister to know she could see a lake. Her sister, Delena, said she encouraged her sister to come on home, but Gina didn't respond to that, other than getting in one last word before the call went dead. Her last word was Steve, which her sister believes was Gina's attempt at identifying her abductor. After that night, Gina was never seen alive again. According to Epperly's friend, Epperly left the lake house a few hours later at about 4.30 or 5 in the morning. He didn't own a car and left in the 1975 Chevrolet Monte Carlo that Gina had borrowed from her sister that night. Before he left the lake house, neighbor witnesses would later report hearing gunshots and vehicles coming and going during the early morning hours. By noon on Monday, Gina's car was found by Craig Runyon and Robert Lent, friends of Delena, helping her search for her sister. The car was located close to a railroad trestle over the New River on Hazel Hollow Road in Radford. The car's trunk was open, the seat was pushed all the way back, and the inside of the driver's door handle strap was broken, almost as if it was damaged by Gina trying to keep someone from getting in the car. The seat being pushed back was unusual because Gina was a petite girl and always had the seat pushed up all the way to the front. Found inside the trunk was hair and blood evidence, which matched Gina's O-positive blood type. Furthermore, various items like towels and cleaning supplies were missing from the lake house. There at the lake house, police found evidence of a cleanup attempt, with bloodstains and blood splatter found both inside and outside the home. There were cattail seeds on the front grill of the car and mud on the left side tires, as if the car had pulled over in a ditch or an area common for cattail seeds. Inside the car was trash from a fast food restaurant, which Gina was known to not eat. There was also an orange cup with the Tennessee Volunteers football logo on it and an ashtray full of cigarettes. Gina didn't smoke, and interestingly, neither did Epperly. One of her shoes was found on the other end of the railroad trestle, and about two weeks later, Gina's blood-stained clothes were found bundled up neatly, as if placed in the woods across the trestle from where the car was located. Also, a blue towel from the lake house was found in the same area and had been used to clean up the blood-stained carpet. The blood found on the towel was human and was the same type as Gina's. The synthetic carpet fibers found on the towel 
that matched the blood-stained carpet in the lake house also matched the carpet fibers found on the trunk's carpet. Finally, Gina's clothing also had similar carpet fibers on them. When Epperly was questioned, he claimed that Gina voluntarily left the Marriott with him in her sister's car to go to his friend's lake house. He said once there, she called her sister. Epperly said that Gina refused to have sex with him, then decided to leave, so she dropped him off at his place at 4 a.m. in Radford. Epperly claimed he went to sleep after that and never saw Gina again. A murder weapon was never found, but the investigators believed that Epperly might have killed Gina after she refused his sexual advances. Rumors began to spread around town about Gina's disappearance, including talk of murder and her being buried somewhere around the Deadman Center in Radford, where construction was underway at the time. Pulaski County Commonwealth's attorney, Everett Shockley, was persistent in getting justice for Gina, despite many of his peers and even a judge in the area advising him not to press charges against Epperly until the body was found. It wouldn't be long before Epperly's violent past revealed that he was not the all-American boy many believed he was. In fact, in 1976, four years before Gina's murder, Epperly faced two charges of rape. A judge dismissed one for difference in opinion, and in the second, he was found not guilty thanks to his high-dollar defense attorney. Epperly was ultimately indicted for Gina's murder, but was convinced it was impossible to be found guilty without a body. However, during the trial, Attorney Shockley called 31 witnesses and presented over 90 pieces of forensic evidence. One of the most compelling witnesses was retired Pennsylvania State Trooper John Preston and his tracking dog. The German Shepherd named Harris II was given a piece of Epperly's clothing and followed the scent trail over the railroad trestle, across the river, through the town of Radford, to the front porch of a house, and stopped at the front door of none other than Stephen Epperly. The dog also identified the blue towel from a towel lineup, and he located Epperly's car in the police parking lot and led police inside the building to the room Epperly was sitting in. Strangely, Epperly responded, That's a damn good dog. Epperly's friend Bill King testified that about a week after Gina disappeared, he had a conversation with Epperly where he asked if he killed Gina. He said that Epperly replied, We'll just have to wait and see. The most damning of Epperly's own inculpatory statements came from the testimony of William Cranwell. William was the last prosecution witness to be called and testified that Epperly asked him, What can they do to me if they do not find the body? This statement was made on Tuesday, before Epperly had even told the authorities he had been with Gina, before he failed the polygraph test, and before he officially became a suspect. In early December of 1980, six months after Gina was last seen alive, Epperly was found guilty of murder and sentenced to life in prison. He became the first person in Virginia to be convicted of first-degree murder in a case with no body, confession, or eyewitness, and only the fourth in U.S. history. The Hall family actively campaigned and fought against Epperly's parole request throughout the decades. Decades later, in 2016, a new lead came into Radford Police Department about a man named Lincoln Duncan, 
who saw two men driving a white van dismembering a body in Meadow Creek that he believed was Gina. To this day, the second man seen in the creek with Epperly is still unknown. This new information was the reason Gina's sister Delena was brought back into the specifics of Gina's case. Delena, strong in her faith, later became an unstoppable force, finding answers to her sister's last night alive, as well as getting her some long overdue justice. She wanted to clear up many lies surrounding her sister and the events of that night, especially those who say her sister willingly went with Epperly, which she says is most definitely not true. She has even authored two books on the matter. She has also been determined to find her sister's remains and has literally dug up riverbeds. In 2020, Delena was introduced to Dr. Arpad Bass, a forensic anthropologist who had invented an instrument known as the quantum oscillator, which can detect human remains even if buried beneath the surface. This one-of-a-kind instrument is based on resonant frequency and is designed to search and respond to the matching frequency unique to an individual and their genetic family. Dr. Vass stated that he could find your ancestor's grave by using hair, fingernails, etc. from a related family member and placing it in his instrument. In Gina's case, her mother's sample was put into the device and miraculously identified numerous positive signals in areas suspected of containing her remains. Four excavations for Gina's remains would eventually result in soil tests, proof of human decomposition, and the unearthing of human bones, as well as other items. Since then, Gina's bone fragments have been retrieved from several different excavation sites. Gina's positive signal was identified in eight different locations throughout the New River Valley using the device. They received a very strong positive signal in the exact corner of the lake house where blood splatter proved Gina was beaten unmercifully. The most significant of the excavations was six miles from Meadow Creek where Lincoln Duncan said he saw her being dismembered. During the excavation, they found a gold bracelet shoe remnants, and cloth fibers in addition to her remains. The bracelet is believed to be Gina's missing wrist bracelet that was never found. In August 2020, 40 years after Gina's murder, the new owner of the Epperly House helped Dr. Voss and Elena cut a square out of the wood floor in Epperly's old second-floor bedroom. On the subfloor, the doctor and Elena discovered hundreds of dead bottle flies, the kind that quickly flocked to human decomposition. Also in that small space were tiny human bone fragments retrieved from under Epperly's bedroom closet subfloor. The retrieved bone fragments were separated based on four different frequencies. The bone fragments were found to have belonged to four different females, leaving many to believe he was possibly a serial killer. The sample that gave the positive signal that led them to this specific area of the former Epperly House belonged to the family of 14-year-old Angela Rader, a girl who disappeared from Roanoke on the same day as her friend, 14-year-old Tammy Lynn Akers, in 1977. Angela's sample led to the discovery of the bone fragments of two other Caucasian females and one African-American female. 
Three of them remain unidentified and are assumed to be runaways who were never reported missing. Eberly had allegedly told a former cellmate of his that he had kept Gina's index finger. This is what led them to search the former Epperly home. Interestingly, Angie's brother's sample was used in the device not only to locate that very specific spot in the upstairs bedroom closet subfloor of the Epperly house, but also other areas of interest in Pulaski County. Delana and Dr. Vass used the bone fragments of the other unidentified females in the quantum oscillator and followed their signals from Roanoke south. The positive areas paint an interesting picture of Stephen Epperly and the trail of his victims. In regards to Gina's remains, Delana is in the process of working with a genealogy expert who will help her coordinate a Canadian DNA lab that has been successful in extracting ancient DNA from degraded bones. She will then have the help of a second lab based in the U.S. This lab will profile the extracted DNA and then match the extracted DNA to the DNA from Gina's recently deceased birth mother's tissue sample. The genealogy expert helping guide her through this process is highly respected in her field, sometimes working with the smallest DNA sample. This will all be at Delena's own expense. She is also hoping, at a minimum, to inquire if the Canadian lab would be able to retrieve DNA from the smaller bone fragments of the unidentified girls. During a recent visit by the state authorities with Delena, she asked them if they would like the information on these professionals she has chosen to work with. Basically, she asked them to work with her as Gina's case is complex. She was advised during their visit that there is cold case grant money. She then asked if they would consider using some of the grant money to help, and if so, she will initiate the same forensic testing for Angela and the three unidentified girls. The tiny bone fragments collected from Epperly's closet are still in Delena's possession, as are the bones excavated from Gina's locations. In July 2021, Stephen Epperly's latest parole request was denied. Several books have been written regarding Gina's case, including the two authored by her sister Delena. Her first book is titled The Miraculous Journey, A Day Made in Heaven. In this book, Delena shares the 2016 experiences that brought her back to the New River Valley to relive 1980, retracing Gina's footsteps. Delena also asked to read Gina's case files, which led to facts in Gina's case being unveiled. These facts led to her second book, Web of Lies Unveiled, A Day Made in Hell, which is still in the works and currently being edited. This 400,000-word case study shares the known and the unknown details about her sister's murder, the investigation, the case file facts, and the trial. It is written in a day-by-day, minute-by-minute chronological format, unveiling the factual details and events as they unfolded, including information never shared with the public. Delena's purpose in sharing this now is to have one factual resource for the true story of Gina Hall and put an end to the lies that continue to be spun about her sister's life still four decades later. Delena writes, Gina deserves her voice to be heard. Light will shine in the dark, and truth will prevail.
Pamela Gail Milam was born in 1953 and described as vibrant with a bubbly personality who was very kind and helpful. After graduating from Terre Haute's Honey Creek High School, she enrolled in college with dreams of becoming a teacher. In 1972, at the age of 19, Pam was a sophomore at Indiana State University studying to be an English teacher. She lived off campus with her parents, Charles and Helen, and younger sister, Sheila. In September of 1972, the university was having its rush week, and Pam was a member of the Sigma Kappa sorority. She was planning to stay on campus to attend several sorority events, beginning with a rush party for her sorority on Friday, September 15th. After the party ended at around 10.15 p.m., Several members of the sorority, including Pam, were given boxes of decorations. Pam put hers in her car, parked in lot 22, and headed to another event. When she left the second event, she told her sorority sisters she would meet them back at the Lincoln Quad, where she planned to stay the night. But unfortunately, she never showed. Her sorority sisters didn't think much of it and assumed she had changed her mind and gone home. The next morning, Pam never showed up for work, which she had never done before, and this worried her family. Then around 7 p.m. that evening, two of her sorority sisters spotted her 1964 Pontiac Le Mans parked in lot 27, about a block from where it had been parked the day before. When they looked inside the car, they could see her glasses on the rear window shelf. Concerned, the girls called Pam's house and informed her parents. Her father and sister quickly grabbed a spare set of keys and headed for lot 27. Upon arriving, her father popped the trunk of the car and to his horror found his daughter's lifeless body. She was bound with leaves and dirt all over her clothes, meaning she was most likely taken to a wooded area at some point. In addition, investigators were able to recover DNA from Pam's blouse. The lead investigator insisted on collecting soil and trace evidence that they had no way of testing, but he believed the science would one day catch up, and it would prove useful at that time. They had an initial suspect by the name of Robert Wayne Austin, who had been arrested for committing several assaults around campus. However, with no evidence to officially charge him, the case would go cold. In 2008, her case was reopened by the newly appointed Terre Haute Police Chief Sean Keene. Keene had the DNA from the crime scene tested and was able to quickly rule out Robert Wayne Austin. He continued to work the case for the next 11 years, manually removing hundreds of suspects. Meanwhile, her parents sadly passed away before any breaks in the case were ever discovered. In 2018, Keene sent the last sample of DNA to Parabon Nanolabs, who were able to use it for genetic genealogy. This led them to a single suspect, Jeffrey Lynn Hand. Keene learned that Hand was dead, but used a reverse paternity test to confirm that Hand had murdered Pam. After tracking down Hand's widow and two sons, Keene obtained their DNA and submitted it to the Indiana State Crime Lab, and it came back a match. Jeffrey Hand was around 23 years old at the time of Pam's murder. In 1972, Hand was working for a Chicago-based record company, delivering records to stores throughout Illinois and Indiana, and was familiar with the area on and around the Indiana State University campus. 
Less than a year after Pam's death, Han had picked up two newlywed hitchhikers, 24-year-old Jeffrey Thomas and his 22-year-old wife. The couple was heading back home to Evansville, Indiana, after visiting some friends in Chicago. Hand had picked them up just south of Terre Haute in his turquoise 1968 Chevy near the intersection of US-41 and I-70 and began driving south. They drove in silence for two hours before arriving at a shabby farm on Warrington Road just north of the Vandenberg County line. Hand told the couple he wanted to stop at his sister's house to see about getting some money, but when they arrived, he pulled over pulled out a gun, and demanded money after firing a round into the air. Then, pointing a pistol at their backs, he walked them into the small farmhouse. When the couple showed him they only had $1.17 between them, he tied their hands with a spool of rope, then forced them into a grain silo and told them he was holding them ransom. He said that he made a plan to leave Jeffrey's wife tied up in the silo while he and Jeffrey drove to Evansville to rustle up a few hundred dollars in ransom money. He said once he secured the cash, he'd let them both go. Around 2 a.m., the two men pulled away from the farmhouse, and it was the last time his wife, of only two weeks, would ever see him alive. While they were gone, she escaped the silo and ran to a nearby home for help. When police arrived, they were able to quickly arrest Hand. He then led them to the deceased body of Jeffrey, who had been discarded in a weedy area just over the Posey County line. At Hand's trial, he went mad when he saw a news photographer taking his photo and had to be subdued and led out of the courtroom. In the end, he was found not guilty by reason of insanity and instead was committed to a state reformatory for two years. On January 24, 1978, Nearly seven years after taking Pam's life, Hand forced 25-year-old Susan Matlock into her 1977 Pontiac Thunderbird outside a shopping center in Kokomo, Indiana. Inside the store, a clerk named Kathy Graham saw the event unfold and called the police, telling them she believed she just saw a possible abduction. Inside the car, Hand told Susan that he had a gun and a knife and wasn't afraid to use either one. He also told her that he had just robbed someone. With Hand weighing his options and wanting to get to South Bend, Susan offered to drive him to the nearest bus station, but he declined. Meanwhile, Kokomo officer Jerry Castle pulled up, and Hand fled on State Street in the direction of 17th Street until he lost control of the vehicle and plowed into a snowbank. As he took off running, off-duty officer Vernal Ball caught up with him in a nearby alley. Officer Ball eventually cornered him and told him to remain still, but instead, Hand reached for his gun. He shot at Officer Ball, hitting his hand and side. Officer Castle finally arrived on the scene and shot Hand several times. Thankfully, Officer Ball survived, but Hand didn't. Police ended up locating a long piece of rope in Hand's coat pocket along with clothing, sock caps, masking tape, bandages, ammunition, leather gloves, and pictures of recently engaged couples clipped from the local newspaper in his abandoned vehicle. Clearly, he was planning to continue his reign of terror. Thankfully, Pamela's surviving family can finally have some closure. 
at the age of 37, Barbara Ruth Becker was living in San Diego, California, in the La Jolla area, with her husband and two young sons. Barbara's husband was a prominent University of California, San Diego medical professor. They also lived in a neighborhood that was close to the university and the Scripps Institute of Oceanography. On March 21, 1979, Barbara's two young sons, ages 7 and 9, came home from school and found their mother's bloodied body in the living room. Scared to death, they ran to a neighbor's house and called the police. When the police arrived, they would find Barbara deceased from multiple knife wounds. They would find Barbara deceased from multiple knife wounds. Detectives worked to solve the case, but eventually all leads were exhausted and the case went cold. Years later, DNA from the crime scene was entered into the CODIS database, but there were no matches. Investigators would later find out that Barbara's killer was arrested in L.A. in 1994, 15 years after her murder. While the killer was a sex offender and had his DNA taken, it was right before the CODIS database was fully implemented. In 2018, authorities in San Diego reached out to the FBI's genealogy team for assistance. They were able to create a DNA profile of the killer and use it for genetic genealogy research. The genealogists built a family tree and discovered immediate family members of the killer who had volunteered their DNA. Finally, on the 40th anniversary of her death, authorities announced the identification of her killer as Paul Jean Chartrand. However, Chartrand died in Arizona in 1995 at the age of 43. His family confirmed that he lived in San Diego around the time of the murder. Chartrand was adopted as an infant from an orphanage in Montreal, Canada. He then moved with his parents and sister to Phoenix, Arizona. It remains unknown if he and Barbara knew each other or if the murder was just a random act. Opal Weil was born on October 8, 1904, and at the age of 82, was living in St. Petersburg, Florida. Opal was well-known and loved in her neighborhood, where she would go on daily walks. On February 8, 1987, Opal's sister-in-law, Frida Giles, who lived just across the street, saw Opal on one of her walks between 3 and 4 p.m. Frida tried calling Opal before 8 a.m. the next morning, but she didn't answer the phone. Growing concerned, Frida went across the street and knocked on the door, but Opal still didn't answer. Frida walked to the back of the house and saw that the kitchen nightlight was still on, a light that Opal would always turn off when she got up at 6 a.m., as she approached the back door, she was horrified to see that a window pane had been removed and was leaning against the wall. She slowly walked into the house and sadly discovered Opal's deceased body in her bedroom. Opal had visible signs of trauma and had been strangled to death. Investigators found that the killer had used either leather or cloth gloves to remove the window pane and gain entry, leaving behind no fingerprints. He had also cut the telephone wire and stole several pieces of jewelry. Thankfully, forensic experts collected several hairs from the crime scene, but the case would go cold until 2003 when DNA technology had improved enough to create a partial profile. However, upon entering the information into CODIS, there were no matches. Finally, in late 2020, 
17 years later, DNA from the crime scene hairs underwent extensive testing by Parabon Nanolabs. A genetic genealogist was able to narrow down the suspect to one man, Michael Lapnuski, who had lived only half a mile from Opal at the time of the murder. It was determined that Lapnuski had been living in Waveland, Mississippi for the past 30 years, so detectives traveled there to try to obtain his DNA. Working with officers from the Waveland and Bay St. Louis Police Departments, a detective in July 2022 watched Lebnuski open a new soda straw and use it to stir a cup of coffee in a Marathon gas station before sucking the coffee from the end of the straw and throwing it away. It was the only straw in the trash can and was recovered and tested for DNA evidence. It was a match, but detectives wanted more, so they got the help of a Bay St. Louis police detective by the name of Ray Murphy. Ray owned a restaurant and knew Lapnuski quite well, so they devised a plan to run a free meal promotion with the hope that he would come in, eat, and unwittingly leave his DNA. Flyers were produced offering free food to residents, and one was placed directly on the windshield of Lapnuski's car while it was parked in a public place. Sure enough, he entered the restaurant with the flyer for a free meal at the specified time. Undercover officers watched their suspect like hawks and swooped in as soon as he had finished and left, taking his spoon and fork. They sent off the utensils for DNA testing, and lo and behold, they were a match. Lapnuski would have been only 19 years old at the time of the murder. On January 27, 2023, He was arrested and flown back to Florida to face first-degree murder charges 36 years after the heinous crime. Detectives are also looking into the possibility that Lamnuski murdered Eleanor Swift as well. On February 13, 1987, five days after the murder of Opal, Eleanor was found dead in her home as well. Just like Opal, she was found beaten and strangled to death. In both cases, A strand of straight, brown hair was left behind, and the killer only stole wedding rings from both victims. Hopefully, they have DNA evidence from Swift's case and can test it soon and give her family some long-awaited answers. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.